0: Welcome to Constructed Curiosity, a podcast that aims to expand your horizons and promote personal growth by exploring various topics and having conversations with extraordinary people. I'm your host, Casey Sprague. Thank you for joining me. Let's start the show. Hello and welcome today. I'm joined by Josh Pitcher, a guy I've known for a really long time and you know, went to college with and had some good times with a lot of field exercises that I remember. So Josh, how are you doing? hey i'm doing good casey how you doing You know, i can't complain i mean it's funny i have a better beard but you have much better hair at this point in time
1: hey yeah thank you i'm a little overdue for a haircut right now you missed me i had a nice solid beard about a week ago so compared beards at that point then oh yours is a lot better than mine was So Josh is a really interesting
0: guy, so he has a lot of different stories that he's going to hopefully share with us today. But, you know, we both commissioned at Eastern Kentucky University, but I want to take it back a step further. So tell me about your early childhood and what you did up through high school.
1: Well, um, I was a military brat, I guess would be the easiest way to say it. Born in Germany and then lived in Georgia. At Hunter Arway Airfield, Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Fort McCollum, Alabama, Oak, Louisiana, Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, and then moved to Kentucky in 2001, where my father was um, based out of Fort Knox. And there um, I did high school high school uh, from 03 to 07. And, you know, I played soccer with the team. Probably wasn't that very good, but, um, you know, it, I didn't quite know what I was going to be doing with myself. I knew I'd be joining the military. I wanted to be a pilot, but I found out I was colorblind. So there took me being a pilot out of the equation. And then I kind of wanted to enlist and take either the uh, the RIP contract, as it was, the uh, Ranger Indoctrination Program, as it was back in 2007. But um, I, I guess I wasn't too dumb in high school. I got a few scholarships too. Different colleges throughout the bluegrass state and well, Kentucky University, because it just seemed like it would be a good home for me.
0: So, what are your favorite things to do growing up? I mean, having moved around so many places, you know, they always talk about military kids being dandelions They can bloom anywhere. What did you think the most difficult parts were, and what were your favorite things to do?
1: i'd say my favorite things to do are definitely tromping around in the woods uh the one thing about military installations unless you're living in arizona or fort bliss texas is that there's a lot of woods on many of them so just going in the woods with the friends building forts uh playing primitive army if you will throwing dirt clods and rocks at each other looking back at it now it probably wasn't too smart and then um I mean, that, yeah, that was really just about it. Like, just a group of friends that I made at every different duty location because we were, all our fathers were in the military. And when one father deployed, uh, much of the time, your father deployed too because they were all in the same unit. So it was a very tight-knit group throughout elementary school and um, for a little bit middle school growing up. But the hardest part, per se, is that, you know, I would live at one location every year, for instance, Fort McClellan two years, Fort Polk one year, Fort Leonardwood one year, and then I moved to Fort Knox. It's not easy um building relationships with friends because you have to start over every time your father moves to a new location, you have to remake new friends and hopefully they have the same interest as you. They're not um living on the other side of the base, if you like them in school or whatnot. So if can get rough, um, they kind of help out. I played soccer a lot, a lot of recreational soccer um, throughout my childhood. So it was easy to make friends in that capacity. But um, the hardest part was having to let go of good friendships throughout the years because you, you knew you weren't going to see them again or hear from them again just because there wasn't Facebook or MySpace yep. during that time. And I'm showing my age by mentioning MySpace.
0: (laughs) That's our age at that point. Goodness, yeah. MySpace, it's been a long time ago. But that's what I noticed with my kids. I mean, I'm somebody who grew up in the same hometown. Literally, the only time I moved was three-quarters of a mile down the road to a different house. So watching the effects of the constant moves on my children just was a different experience for me. And, you know, three daughters and then one son. So the daughters that are older, they remember it. And, yeah, that was the, what they always just found painful, to you know, hug in their friends goodbye before you PCS'd. And that's, that was a very difficult experience for them. So, yeah, I can definitely empathize with your childhood self on
1: that one seeing the parent view of it. I mean, looking back at it, though, it kind of shaped me for who I was because, I mean, you mentioned Danny Lines, and you couldn't be further from the truth. Like, it wasn't ever hard for me to socially – while I was growing up, I was kind of an extrovert. My brother was a little bit more on the introverted side, but like, you know, it just, it helped me with my social skills and it kept me from basically just being a complete dick to other people uh, throughout my childhood. And I guess it didn't carry over into my um, later years because I kind of grown to become more of an introvert now than I've ever was.
0: Well, we'll get to probably a little more of that explanation of how you converted to more of an introvert. But you know Eastern Kentucky University, wonderful place. I mean, I I loved the campus. It wasn't too big, wasn't too small. It was like a just right size fit. Exactly. And some of the some of the earliest memories I have of you is just a physical freak as far as you know fitness. You could run really fast. You did more push-ups than most people. Did more sit-ups than most people. And I was a guy who was a baseball player in high school. I'm like, I'm kind of physically fit, but this guy's on a whole other level.
1: Well. I guess to me, I've always been on the competitive side growing up. I mean, I don't run anymore nowadays. I did a lot of running. In fact, I didn't do any marathons until after I lost my leg. And now I've run five marathons. But now just because of, um, I've gotten a lot into lifting weights now, and that's really helped me out psychologically too. And actually I've been in a lot better shape than I ever have been since I, um, converted over to lifting weights, as opposed to running, um, but, um, I think back in college, it was a big rivalry between me and just a couple of the other cadets. Um, you remember j.t. Hess? Yep. Isaac I mean, the three of us were always either a in the gym, B running or just trying to push ourselves. And you know we we all knew Hess. Hess was one of the best cadets in the battalion. Now he's okay. a very soldier doing great things um for his country. And Isaac's a very successful businessman right now with a beautiful family. So it's crazy how we took three different paths, but we all started on the same page. And a lot of it was just pushing each other through our rivalry.
0: And yeah, the healthy rivalry is always good, you know, to make you strive for something better or just to beat somebody, even though, you know, there's no malice in it, but it still
1: gives you that determination. Yeah. I mean, and I kind of got a lot of that now still. I think a lot of the big thing for me in um, college was, you know, it, it was my time to basically I was away from the family. I, I was on my own, per se, and I kind of didn't hang around my class, as as you probably know, for the most part. I was hanging out with the the, the juniors or the seniors, if you will, um, the Josh Coles, the Nick Corey's, the Hoaxamas of the group, just because. I don't know. It may have been because they could buy alcohol and I couldn't, but I mean, I formed some really good relationships with those guys and I'm still very good friends with them to this day. It was um you know, nothing against our class or anything. I just connected more with some of these upperclassmen just because of our similarities, what we had in common. Me and Cole would go on hikes a lot throughout the pinnacles, uh Nick Corey, um always getting me into trouble, if you will. <laughs> but, um, you know, I could argue that I wouldn't have met my wife in college or many of the friends that I had if it wasn't for some of those guys, just because if they're going out to a party, I was going out with them. And that's where I met a lot of influential people that to this day I'm still close with.
0: I feel like we had an interesting class too it changed so much over the years you know these guys would be in then they'd be out the new group would come in half of them would wash out so by the time we actually commissioned i think we were the original class was down to like four or five maybe six of the people who were freshmen together well
1: i always thought there was a lot a little bit more to that um, i always like to refer to our class in commissioning as the golden class because i think <laughs> We had 24 um, freshman scholarship cadets at EKU. during that class in 2007 that started, and I, I want to think that at least 18, maybe 16, commissioned with us. There, there was a, there was a couple that dropped out, a couple that um, changed their majors, so they were, you know, on a five-year, six-year program, but. Uh, Looking back at it, we had a pretty solid commissioning group. And then you see it nowadays. I mean, I taught at EKU from 2018, 2020, and the commissioning classes are a lot smaller than the one that um, I commissioned back in 2011.
0: Yep. Well, different times. You know, that's something people don't consider either. You know, we still had two major conflicts at that point. You know, one was winding down, but because you know, all the scholarships were getting passed out. And nowadays, I heard it's a lot more competitive to try to get
1: one. Well, Casey, you'd, be, you'd probably be a little bit surprised. Um, I mean, yeah, back in 2007, you had the surge in Iraq going on. So, yeah, if, if you had a heartbeat, did could pass the Army physical um, fitness test at the time. Yeah, you would probably get a scholarship as long as you weren't a felon. But um, even nowadays, though, I mean – yeah, the Afghanistan is over. Thank goodness. Um, Iraq is definitely wound down since operation Inherent resolve kicked off, um, over five years ago, but even now, so I think the United States army is at a crossroads just because of the, you know, the recruiting needs right now, there is a definitely a need for good outstanding leadership in the army. And I think that there's going to be a lot more, um, Cadets that are going to need to be contracted in that regard. I think the competition is lower now in some instances just because of the nature that we have to recruit more soldiers. We're not meeting numbers right now in the Army. So, I mean, I can't see why anybody wouldn't want to join the military. The benefits are outstanding. So, my recruiting pitch or anything, but (laughs) I don't regret what I've done.
0: No, I mean, it's a different landscape now than when we joined up. You know, we joined up, like you said, those two conflicts going on. You knew you were going to get deployed. You knew, you know, something could happen, and we'll get to that in a minute. Something did happen to you. And it's just the, a peacetime military with all of the benefits that come with it, it doesn't make sense not to at least give it three years. That's something I've talked to, you know, my nephew. I've talked to many different people. If you want to not make it a career, that's perfectly fine. I had a boss at one point who put it the best way I've ever heard it. As long as you give 100% while you're in uniform, I don't care how long you wear the uniform. If you do it 3 years, 25, 30 years, whatever, just, you know, do the best you can do while you're wearing the uniform.
1: Yeah, and I think to that aspect too, it doesn't help that there's been significant changes to the military and the benefits since we joined. We don't get the um, the retirement program, well, I do and you probably did too, but you know, we we had a retirement program where you did 20 years and you're getting 50% of your paycheck for the rest of your life, which is pretty solid if you make it to, you know, master sergeant or sergeant major on the enlisted side or lieutenant colonel or above on the officer side. And that's, that's something that as long as you kept staying in, you didn't get in trouble and you showed some level of confidence, it was really achievable. But nowadays, though, like with the blended retirement program, there's just it's hard to retain soldiers and now. My biggest fear is that we'll have soldiers that will do their four years, and we find out they're outstanding leaders, but then they're going to go to a business and make a lot more money because that four hundred one k is going to get matched, and they're going to make a lot more money on the civilian side. And you can't blame them for it; they did their service, and um, now they're going off, and you know they're a veteran. You know, you do four years, you're a veteran. You do twenty nine years, you're still a veteran. But I can't necessarily blame them per se. Changing the retirement system, you know, may have effects down the road. I, I don't have the quantifiable data in front of me to prove it, but we'll, we'll see. I agree, I,
0: I brought it up on a prior episode, so apologies if anybody's heard me say it before. But yeah, as an issue, we had in my reserve unit. They're trying to, you know, mobilize people to go do a mission on the border. And they're having people drop packets to get out left and right because they're making double the amount of money they would make for that 12-year mobilization at their civilian jobs. And, yeah, you have protection where you can't get released within 18 months or 24 months after you come back. But they'll give you a comparable position, but you're not going to be in the know of what's going on at that job. And you're going to lose out on 50% of the income that you've used to having, become accustomed to having. That's a drastic change that the military has got to be able to address somehow to really keep that talent.
1: No, it, you're right. And um, it, yeah, I almost got nothing to say to that just because like, yeah, there's the GI Bill, but you can get all the benefits in the Army by just doing your four-year obligation and leaving. And it takes a lot more money to train a soldier to get as competent and proficient as they are once they're a, you know, an NCO, or you know a captain, but once that captain or that NCO leaves, you got to find somebody else and hope that they're just as good. So, well, we'll see. We'll see. There's a lot of great officers and NCOs right now. that are making more than I am right now.
0: <laughs> so let's move on from college. You know, commissioned, and then what was your journey like after commissioning?
1: Um. Wow. It, it was um I, I almost don't know how to explain it really, besides the fact that it was very um standard. Um immediately after commissioning, I reported to Fort Benning, Georgia for the infantry basic officer leader course or i bullock, as you will. And I had some of the best times of my life during that time as well. Um from May to um August met some incredible people during that time. And um for some reason, they, they made me the Destino Schotter graduate of that eye bullet class, which to this day, I don't understand because I got yelled at a lot. Um, and then I went able to, to range School in that September for 61 days, which um, was not that much. But it it wasn't too bad. And then afterwards, some more Army schools. And then I showed up to um, the center of the universe, Fort Bragg, going to be Fort Liberty, I guess, North Carolina.
0: So yeah, Ranger School. I can imagine that's not a good time. I wanted to pass on that one. I was lucky enough not to have to do that. <laughs> Most aviators don't. So it worked out pretty well. But that seemed like a miserable experience. I remember talking with we uh, you know with maneuver at some point. You know, we have the branches, but aviation armor and infantry are all considered maneuver. So when I was a bullet instructor, they do some combined exercises with the students and that's what they always talk about. like yeah this guy's going to ranger school in like three weeks after graduation like that sounds terrible enjoy
1: <laughs> i hear that, so, that yeah. Again. yeah i mean the, the thing about me i mean i'm an infantry officer so like for me it was on active duty it's not a requirement per se but it's highly encouraged that you get your ranger tab as an infantry officer, especially if you're going to, you know, a unit like the 101st Airborne Division or the 82nd Airborne Division. And I told all my cadets you know, while I was teaching them, and I like to think that my infantry officers, um, I know two of them for sure did get their ranger tabs, and they both went to the 101st, so, you know, they I kind of wrote them off a little bit because I'm an 82nd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, it's not for everybody, so I don't really hate on people that don't have ranger tabs. It's
0: definitely very, when you're going to be the actual ground pounder, you know, the traditional view of what America thinks the Army is, especially as an officer, I think ranger school is very important because that, you know, you're, you're the person on the ground making the decisions where I got to just fly over and not have to, was in harm's way, but not in the same kind of harm's way. It's totally different, different experience. And, you know, to have that specialized training for the kind of missions that you're taking on,
1: yeah, I think is critical for those kind of officers. Uh, I mean, I got a lot of respect for your pilots. Um, my father, he was a combat flight medic in the 160th in the late 80s, early 90s. So, you know, there's there a lot of conflicts he was a part of. And I, I remember going and um, actually being able to get up in some of the birds back in the day, I guess, when you could do that type of stuff. And, um, you know, that that was one of the reasons I wanted to be an aviator, too. But, um, yeah, again, can't see red and green. Or so the doctor said, you know, I was a jump master for going on seven years. So I guess you should be able to see the green light and the red light when you're pushing paratroopers out of door. But apparently I couldn't.
0: Yeah. Well, the physicals are ridiculous for aviation. And sometimes you're like, is this even a a real test? (laughs) So They could probably have gotten it wrong very easily. Fair enough. But let's move on. So 82nd Airborne, you know, Airborne, yeah, Airborne all the way for the 82nd there let's hear about your time there and you know the deployment
1: well um so i got to um the four forgate combat team in early january um i had to give up pathfinder school to deploy because it was um there was a force cap at the time and um i you know i guess i could have went to pathfinder school and then showed up and then i could have deployed because i think they were just saying that to fill seats to be fair but um I was like, yeah, I'd rather go be a PL in combat, which, in hindsight, was probably the stupidest thing I could ever have. Done. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I uh, went to um, Delta Company, the 2nd of the 508th Parachute Regiment, fury from the Sky. And then, not more than a few weeks later, I am in Zari District, Kandahar Province, Afghanistan, which may be one of the worst places imaginable. <laughs>
0: Did not get some time in RC South. I was in RC East when I was there, but I would, from what I've heard, it's even hotter and more miserable in RC South. I mean, RC East is just
1: they're brown. There's nothing else to look at. It's just brown. So
0: tell me a little bit more about RC South.
1: Um, I like to compare Zari District as a mixture of the Flintstones, um, town of Bedrock, and the after effects of the Hiroshima bomb or the Nagasaki bomb. And um, that ended World War II. Just um, a very (laughs) desolate, um, destroyed place that looked like it was a hundred years in the past. But you know, all over the place you could see either like um the grape huts where they dried out grapes, or you see poppy fields as far as the eye can see, or marijuana. Well, lots of marijuana. Some of it growing out of the street like a weed. It was crazy, but it was definitely um just a place that you just didn't want to be in. Yep. So
0: if you don't mind, can we go a little bit more into your experience and talk about, you know, the incident that led to, you know, you, as you mentioned earlier, only having the one regular leg?
1: Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, the day before the battalion was clearing at a small village um, called Cattizzi, um found a whole bunch of ieds found a whole bunch of um weapons caches and everything and um it was crazy because the our afghan counterparts if you will were finding ieds and pulling them out of the ground like carrots like just making a beeline and pulling them out of the ground which made me kind of think like did they already know these were here as we walked by them but you know i kind of put that in the back of my head um that evening me and uh, we went on a um, patrol, setting out like an OP, if you will, outside the village to see, you know, if anybody would be coming in. I uh, stayed up all night during that. At about and on this beautiful day, in the most the best weather imaginable, we were about to leave at about 7:30 a.m. I, on a uh, a very loud firecracker, if you will, also known as an improvised explosive device, and uh, took a step and. Fair enough, my left foot looked like a pretzel.
0: So what were your thoughts? I mean, obviously I don't you don't have to go into every detail, but what's the first thing you remember after it
1: happened? Um I think I was trying to get on the radio, maybe to start my nine line or tell first sergeant I was sorry. I don't really remember too much about it. I think I was more shocked shock than anything. Our um Physician's assistant, Dr. Mino, actually did a beeline across a IED lace field. Someone give him a um medal for baller for that one to um give me a morphine. And I think once he put that injection of morphine in my hand, the shock kind of withered away. And I had um one of my soldiers' dirty hands was on my eyes, like, don't look at it, don't look at it, sir. And I'm like Lifting up his hands like no, I want to see it. And then as soon as I saw it, I pulled his hands back down, I'm like, Oh my god. And then the whole time, like the EOD guys are telling me, Hey, yeah, you'll be fine. Walking again in no time, which ironically I was walking again in no time, just not in the way I'd be thinking I'd be walking again.
0: So uh, that's just absolutely a brutal a brutal moment. You know, people don't think about it. Yeah, the way those situations are always portrayed in TV and movies, I don't know if the – you know better than I do you think they're accurate. You know, they always act like it's something very over the top. Movies? Yeah. Uh, and,
1: and, you know, I don't want to speak for, like, the Vietnam era, the Gulf War era, the World War II era, because I wasn't there. But, you know, just to this day – It's, uh, I don't really like watching horror movies per se, especially ones about the global war on terror, just because, um, it's, um, it's hard to explain things to, if my wife is watching with me or, you know, soon enough, my son or my daughter, like, is that what it's like? And I'm explaining like, no, it smells a lot worse. Or what's the worst part about being in this situation? I'm like, uh the smell <laughs> or just um, the anxiety of knowing what's about to happen, but you have no control over it, that that type of thing. So, you know, uh, war movies are not my forte per se. And to tell you the truth, um, I really don't know what my forte of movies is. I hate Marvel movies. I'm not a fan.
0: Me too.
1: <laughs> oh, and I think Disney is just um, – you know, making bank off of a story that's just told itself over and over again, and you know, the same with Star Wars, I guess, so um yeah i don't I don't know i try I try to figure it out I like historical dramas, so um, I guess um it, uh, yeah, historical dramas that sounds really boring per se, but I mean, I got into Yellowstone recently. I'm a big fan of it. I think it's pretty good. That's <laughs> yeah, an
0: interesting show. I like the prequels better, but yeah, do, what the... What? I do, too. Yeah, much better.
1: Yeah, I think um, 1883 was a hell of a lot better than Yellowstone. I wish they could do more episodes.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping they'll extend 1923 beyond two seasons, because there's less... matter we're this this into a fun entertainment podcast, that there's less whiny people. Yellowstone... There's so many whiny people.
1: That drives me crazy. Just, um, again, we talk about realism. I mean, I don't know how many times the Dutton family can murder somebody or get into a gunfight. And just the state of Montana is, like, cool with it. I mean, <laughs> the <laughs> D.F. or the D.E.A. or the FBI is coming to investigate the Duttons because of everything going on. It's just like, uh it's the way it's always been we're doing western justice here so yeah and then i I love how america has a relationship a love relationship with rip and death right now which may be probably the most toxic things imaginable you know both of them have killed people both of them obviously suffer from some type of post-traumatic stress but um hey we 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 as Americans love them for who they are because Rip is a gentleman to Beth, but he is a criminal to the utmost extent. And Beth has no morals, but you know, Hey, they love each other. So that's what we want. So yeah, I don't know.
0: True For the underdog love story, I guess there.
1: I, I do not even think it's the, an underdog. I mean, uh, to tell you the truth, I like the other son and, um, his wife, I mean, I, I forget them now just because they're not that important. But uh, I, yeah, I'm cheering for the other marriage of the other Dunn and son because you know it's more of a marriage that I would want with my wife and my children than Beth and her
0: <laughs> So quickly, just go back to the global terrorism. We talked about the movies there. The common theme that I've seen in them that kind of. I think short changes everything. It's the fact that you know they'd always portray people as having, you know, just everybody's a hero. Everyone is just you know they did the right things and they're just a certain type of person. And why I believe that to a point, you lose the humanity aspect of a lot of the individuals. Like you know, Twelve Strong was a movie that was interesting to a point, but it showed like you know these are superhuman people doing these kinds of acts. And, you know, same thing for. Um, Lone Survivor, same kind of thought process. And these are great Americans. I'm not trying to say they're not. But I feel like we're putting them on a pedestal that it's not a normal human
1: being. Well, uh, Casey, I I think it it just kind of depends on, you know, the context behind the story being told. Um, You mentioned Lone Survivor with um, Marcus Luttrell. And, um, you know, that man endured so much throughout what he went through and i i think he is a hero per se just because you know he was indeed the one lone survivor a member on his team um lieutenant michael murphy earned the medal of honor but you know in my mind marcus luttrell continually gives back to the community and is an example for all soldiers of sacrifice but you know i can't help but i'm not going to say i feel sorry for him because i try not to feel sorry for myself but that man is been through a hell of a lot and just because of his sacrifices losing those friends and everything he's gone through since then you know i i think he is a hero and you know the the 12 strong movie is, is another case in point those guys were basically the pioneers on the global war on terror the first ones in afghanistan and they basically had to make do with what they had to include riding horses in the battle but you know I wouldn't necessarily say everybody who joins the military is a hero even if they do their part even if they serve their country they're an honorable man they're an honorable person if you will like they're honorable because they made a sacrifice to be away from their family and their friends and do something that was greater than them but when when we mention who the heroes are the heroes to me are the ones that made the ultimate sacrifice even if what they did wasn't, you know, valorous by any nature the enemy just had a vote that day or if they did do something valorous anybody that has died for their country is a hero we we um we look at these people with a sense of awe because you know it's really hard for us to compare ourselves as survivors to somebody that can't tell their story so being that, you know, I, I know a lot of people that are dead right now because of conflicts and every single one of them, including the a Kentucky son that died on my baptism of fire, it was, um, you know, I see them as heroes just because, you know, it's very really hard for me to see anything otherwise because they made that ultimate sacrifice and it helped galvanize their unit and their hometown that is supporting our cause and being that much more better. Well,
0: that's a great point. And I feel like the community that we've been a part of sees it a little bit different. I guess to try to pull up the question to more of a strategic viewpoint, I agree. I'm not saying that what those people did was not above and beyond the call of duty. To know that they life for your country is definitely something that I know you and I both have the utmost respect for from the positions that we've been in, the things that we've done, and the friends we've lost. But I, I feel like the way Hollywood portrays it, it hurts the military overall because it doesn't show, it makes people think it's not their issue. Like, you've probably got told a million times, thank you for your service.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, more than count. And I wonder if
0: your opinion is the same as mine. If you didn't wear the uniform or have some kind of connection to the uniform, you saying thank you for your service doesn't have a whole lot of depth to it. It's almost just kind of like, you know, a... A customary thank you and you get your food from somebody. It's, it's not a. There's no depth behind it, and it it separates the military community. From the general population, I feel like it's just the that's their thing. They'll handle it and they don't feel like they're connected Where generations past. The country was very connected, so that's
1: that's what I'm trying to get at and figure out what your view is on that. Well, I mean, it's crazy because you look at Pearl Harbor and the entire country was swarming to serve. I mean, you had people that served in World War one that were trying to serve, but they got kicked back for being too old. You had people killing themselves because they had a problem with their foot or their problem with their body where they couldn't pass the physical, but they really wanted to serve at their Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor galvanized our country during World War II. And, you know, 9-11, I think galvanized our country too. I was in uh, seventh grade math class at the time when that first plane hit. And I just remember watching in that math class, like what is going on? And I didn't know that that would have a huge impact on my life just because the global war on terror, you know, has lasted for over two decades. So, and I think until there's another situation that galvanizes the people again, which I meet my wife, She just walked in. it's Michelle, said, Hi. Okay, okay. okay, she's too shocked. She says it's okay, <laughs> but um, you know, and, and that's the thing about America, and I'll argue that's the thing about humanity in general, is because, you know, they need to be galvanized towards a common purpose. Nine Eleven galvanized us because somebody struck at us, and because we are over a generation away from Nine Eleven, it doesn't have the recruiting potential anymore. Because when it happened to us in middle school or those in high school, yeah, we wanted payback. back. And as long as there was troops on the ground, we could have our chance to serve our country and get it. But now it's um, people these days don't see themselves going to war facing Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. It's for, you know, the benefits of getting their college paid for. And that's going to be even harder for the government, or the military now, because there's a lot of student forgiveness loans going yeah. around. We'll see.
0: It's funny how the world changes in just, you know, a couple decades or even the last five to 10 years. I've told people I got off active duty in 2020, and the Army that I left was not the Army that I joined. It it was very different. You know, things change over the years. It has to evolve and adapt. I get that totally. But, you know, we were trying to transition from, you know, you're going to r 4 gen just deploy, deploy, deploy. Into a more of like, okay, now you're going to be back in garrison. Most of the time your big exercises are going to be your. Your deployments and you know evaluating metrics for the year. So, it's yeah, just you're totally. Mania now. <laughs> yeah. So, we'll get back to your story now and know what happened in the aftermath of the incident.
1: Well, uh, I got sent to Walter Reed. Uh, National military medical center in Bethesda, Maryland. And from May 2012, or excuse me, April 2012 to May 2013, that was my home. And I can tell you, um, I learned more about myself at Walter Reed during that year than I had at any other point in my life, just because I had one focus. And I put it on Facebook before I deleted my Facebook account uh, a few years back. and And I said, I will return. And um you know sure enough a year later i did return to the same unit to deploy again but you know it, i couldn't have done it without you know my surgeon who you know he yeah he chopped off more of my leg but he made it so that way i could wear a prosthetic and walk again so in that regard dr kyle potter thank you and then you know i had my occupational therapist as well um uh, amory who uh you know, I did some very questionable things <laughs> throughout occupational therapy. <laughs> Legos on one leg or rock climbing or uh, learning how to disassemble weapons again while bouncing on one leg, uh, doing wee sports of <laughs> one leg. Um, it was um, a unique way of therapy for me, but it helped me um, kind of be able to get back to being able just to live my normal daily tasks, if you will, like how to eat, how to crap, how to drive, how to do everything else without my wife having to assist me with that. And then, um, you know, that was very influential on me. And then finally, you know, getting into physical therapy too, where I had Bo and then I had Kelly. And um, I just remember getting my ass kicked every single morning because they would make me do some type of um, exercise that would just wear me out while I was um, down there the and then um, you know, one of my favorite aspects of physical therapy was—I um, I guess it would be recreational therapy—but was the traveling, uh, and I'm gonna, you know, blame Harvey for this one, uh, who still works at Walter Reed right now, and you know, just being able to go to Vale, New York, Breckenridge, um, Crested Butte, going down to or um, uh, Miami a lot of different traveling that i did um with the sole purpose of rehabilitation so whether it was snowboarding skiing rowing or mountain biking or cycling i was doing everything i could just to um hey i mean it was traveling i love to travel as anybody that knows me knows and uh, it was good therapy because it got me stronger i got to take my wife on me so we got to connect in that regard at the time she was my fiance but um no it was awesome also, and,
0: uh, I remember during that time, you got a little bit of publicity, you got into a magazine or two, some newspaper articles. How was that
1: experience? Uh, I think so. I think the publicity about it started more so after I got back to duty, just because, you know, if you're missing your leg, most people are going to exit the military. And I don't blame anybody for doing it just because it's pretty damn traumatic to have a body part chopped off and, You know, like, thank you for your service and thank you for everything you've done. Sorry for your sacrifice. Many people will leave the military and I don't fault them one bit. In fact, like, I I can't blame them one bit for getting out. I probably would have gotten out too if it wasn't for the fact that I've only been in the Army for nine months when I got blown up. So, like, I, I didn't even stay in the military long enough to pay back My scholarship, so I just I wanted to stay and I wanted to continue serving no matter what. And um, I guess that was kind of unfathomable for many people, just because it's really rare. To see service members continually serving, especially in the airborne community, there's only, you know, a few that I knew. um, Ken Stillheim, Nick Lavery, um, Joe Kaperchesky, who stayed on and. All the names I just mentioned are special operations personnel, Because, but, you know, through their example, I was also able to stay on, too, just because they kind of laid out the path of what I needed to do to stay on active duty. And for me, it was immediately ruck, um, a 12-mile ruck march, which I did in under three hours with 35 pounds, then um, passing the APFT, which I did. I got a 283 um, that spring prior to returning back to um the second of the five oh eight that may.
0: two eighty three right. is very impressive. A lot of people without that you know prosthetic don't, you can't even get a two eighty three.
1: That's still my lowest PT test score. <laughs> date. Um, I figured you'd say something like that. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's crazy. Um but now the publicity started I think back in August of 2013 I kind of maintained a low profile but then um we had EIB the expert infantry badge in like it it was a pretty big deal in the brigade everybody had to go do it but um I for some reason I got my EIB um I mean it wasn't hard it's basic tasks but I got my expert Infantry badge and <laughs> immediately I got asked by the division um public affairs officer to do an interview and I did an interview With them, I did an interview on a um, radio show in Fayetteville. And then, um, you know, I was a platoon leader again, so I wanted to focus on that because not a year after coming back on active duty, I was back in Afghanistan. (laughs) And then in Afghanistan, um, the Washington Post embedded with us. And, yeah, then that's where the Washington Post story came from, the the infamous Washington Post story about me that came out. (laughs)
0: i I know knowing your personality from college, I, I'd assume you didn't particularly care for all the publicity.
1: Uh, no, but I just remember someone once telling me that, like, you may not like it, but if somebody reads your story and it convinces or inspires them to be a better human being, then what you're doing is a good thing. And that, you know, that kind of stuck with me. Like, it wasn't really about me. Even though it was my story, you know, I could use the platform to kind of inspire others. And I, I hope I've done that uh, throughout my four deployments, multiple medevacs, multiple surgeries, <laughs> and then, like just, you know, brushes with death or, you know, all the things that I've had to overcome. I mean, it's everybody sees the leg and thinks, oh, he's missing his leg. Well, I'm missing a lot more than the leg that people don't know about. And it was, um, just a lot of my psyche i had to start over again i've had to learn how to rewalk four times um because of surgeries and injuries throughout the time mostly due to deployments and it's um you know every leader i've ever told me is hey you got nothing to prove you know you shouldn't have a chip on your shoulder but i feel like i have to prove something every day because um it's hard for me to Keep up with many of these younger guys, many of these able-bodied people, as I like to call them, even though I'm more than able than all of them. It's just, um, you know, it's had a very significant impact, a lot of trauma that I've had to endure. And it's affected more than just me. It's affected my marriage significantly. And, um, you know, while I'm mentioning it now, I'm actually writing a book about all of this. (laughs) So you might be able to read it uh, within a couple of years when it's complete. (laughs) Oh very nice. Any ideas on the title yet? Uh it's a draft. Uh it might change. We'll see. But it's called Hard to Kill. The Soldier's Story About Lost, Perseverance and Hope. I like it. That's a catchy title. We'll see. I'm sure there's about twenty other books with the same title. <laughs> it's always fun. You gotta go
0: to Google and type it in About like, is there something else about it? Nope. Okay, good. That should be, it should be a very interesting book. Like I said, you've had a, an interesting career, and, you know, it's not over yet. you still got some time left to serve. But looking back, you know, out of all the things that have happened, what has been your favorite
1: part of your military experience? Um, the favorite part, so we'll break this down into two parts. My favorite memory into my favorite part. My favorite part of my military experience was the lessons learned. Um, because there are things that I've learned throughout a, as a platoon leader, as a company commander, as a battalion S three, and now as a battalion XO that you know I, I never would have thought I would ever have to learn over again, and a lot of it, it kind of helped shape me. Um, I don't see any failures I've ever had as like something terrible. I see them as lessons learned that kind of help make me a better human being. Um. And I hope that makes me into a better father as well, if you will. But my favorite memory was in Iraq. Um, We were building a small outpost called TAA Wyvern just south of Missoula, which was still occupied by the Islamic State. And uh, me and um, another company commander, Captain Mike Dem, basically, commandeered some heavy construction equipment, front end loaders, and we were busy building our own motor pool and the walls and flattening it out. And, you know, it was a great time figuring out how to use that in the <laughs> Iraq <laughs> blood- for us. That's uh, funny.
0: Yeah, so it's the random stories usually that are the best ones. That's what not a lot of people don't get either, too. It's not, the, it's not what you think, but the, some of the funniest moments or best moments are just random occurrences like that
1: yeah
0: so you know, it was a great time so aside from the block are some of the other efforts you're working on right now
1: uh well i had a blood or excuse me a bone infection three weeks ago that took some more of my leg off i don't know if it's from lifting too much weight or just wear and tear over the years but i don't know where i got a bone infection went to the hospital thinking i'd be in and out with some antibiotics and now i chopped off another inch of my legs so now i gotta start over i'm on crutches i'm on convalescent leave and just hating my life and just wallowing in some self pity right now because all i want to do is get back to my job and keep lifting out yeah, i got a gym at my house so i'm lifting some there but it's nowhere near but you know oh, but, my- i mean am uh, trying to stay relevant right now well, you know, give you
0: some time for your book, you know, get some drafting going.
1: I mean, yeah, I started about a week ago and I'm about 50 pages in right now, so we'll see.
0: Oh, your process is working faster than mine does, and I've written a few books and 50 pages and that amount of time. That's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's encompassing from uh, when I commissioned to the present, so a whole bunch of stuff that goes into it. in. Well, I'll give you a call when I need to publish it because uh, that's going to be the next riddle I got to figure out how to solve is how to publish a book. Well, with, with your topic, you know, you can always
0: go to Army University Press. Fair I enough. They do, it. yeah. I worked at Army U for a little bit before I got out, and yeah, that was one of the things they talked about. If you have a military relevant book that you know talks about your experiences, send it to Army University Press; and they may publish it.
1: Might just have to give that a
0: shot. <laughs> So we're winding down the interview a little bit here. So I like to ask different questions and close out, get your perspective, kinda of, I guess you have know, a little bit of shock value questions, but they're nothing hard. So you've traveled a lot of places, you love to travel. Where's somewhere you want to go?
1: Say it say that one more time, please. So you've traveled a
0: lot of places, but where is somewhere you still
1: want to go there? Oh. Um i'd say in our country it'd be um yosemite national park or yellowstone or even glacier those big three um love hiking love camping i don't think my kids do as much as i do though but um, in this country those are the three big places i've always wanted to visit um internationally speaking um probably in jordan petra love to go visit petra in jordan
0: so that's one I have not heard of I'll have to look it up
1: No, well, well if you've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade you'll know exactly what I'm talking about
0: oh it's that area okay gotcha so in addition to that so you can talk about your travel what is the biggest thing you want to accomplish in the next like 10 years
1: um stay married probably <laughs> <laughs> tell you the truth um Probably transition from active component, retire as lieutenant colonel, and uh, get my Ph.D. or get a, um, a doctoral degree in either physical or occupational therapy.
0: Those are big goals. You know, something to look forward to, you know, something I wish I would have thought about earlier when I was transitioning out was what is your actual plan? Because most people are like me, and you start like six months to a year out. That's when you really start thinking about it. And that's not not really enough time. You know, this is a part of your life. And the longer you go, the more a part of your
1: life it is. Yeah, I mean, man, me and my wife talk about it all the time. And, you know, we, we, we ask, like, what do we want to out? And, you know, we have a beautiful house right now, but it's definitely not going to be the house I retire out of and stay in. So, you know, I'm either looking like, hey, it's either going to be a, a beach house in the Carolinas, or I'm going to find... You know between 50 and 100 acres and um build my nice white ranch house on a hill there Yep. and just live out my days in peace so
0: the last question i always like to answer or ask people it's going to make you think a little bit so take your time on it there's different points in everyone's life that are very important to them you know major life transitions and i can't pinpoint what each one is for you So I go at the standard age, you know, going from 8th grade into freshman year of high school, that 14, if you could go back and talk to your 14 year old self, what would you say? If
1: I could go back and talk to my 14 year old self, it would be don't blow money on stupid shit. And invest in Google and Tesla and Amazon. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, I mean, looking back at it now, I can't believe how much money I've wasted over the years, you know, on either, like, an Audi or a Harley-Davidson or just miscellaneous stuff that, you know, looking back at it, I don't care. <laughs> but it's, um, you know, I'm going to help. You know, teach my kids the benefit of not, you know, blowing your money on material things, but, you know, actually having a plan. And even now, like, we got a good financial plan for our kids right now. So by the time they do want a car when they're 16, you know, I'm trying to convince my son when he's 13, you don't want a motorcycle or a dirt bike or a foiler. You want a car in three years. Save your money. Get a car. He'll get a pickup truck probably. So, I (laughs) can now that is that is
0: great advice and great points, and not something we have to get fully into. But that's what I feel like that's something where a lot of our education system, different stuff fails kids. They need to teach more financial planning, you know, stuff that if you had known at 18 years old would have made a huge difference.
1: Yeah, I mean. I get it that a lot of like the education systems, like, well, that's a life lesson you learned after all life. And how many people, you know, didn't start off right because they had to learn that lesson the hard way down the road. Like, you know, I was very blessed with my family. They supported me. Um, They paid for everything while I was in college. So I didn't want for nothing. But just, um, you know, sound financial planning is key for everything and um i can't recommend it more for everybody you know we take great pride on you know the home that we built here and you know on some case, some aspects i have no business living in my home just because everybody else makes a lot more than i do but me and my wife you know made the right decisions when we were 25 and 26 as opposed to waiting until our 30s to buy a home and you know and a lot of my friends were traveling and going to music festivals, I'm refinancing my house for a two point two percent interest rate. So <laughs> it's funny how all that works. Yeah, I'm the boring friend.
0: Boring I don't know. So I've learned, you know, I've married what going on twelve years. Yeah. It's just a different lifestyle and if you love it, you love it. If you don't you don't I'm just particularly I enjoy it. It's the lifestyle I like to have.
1: Yeah um i've grown apart from a lot of my friends uh, just because you know the military it, it takes us apart of course but it's just like we have less and less common i mean if you got you know if you're married with kids yeah we could probably hang out a little bit more but if you're single and your idea of a good time is going out to a bar and you know going out and partying and everything like it's not really my thing. It is that's why I built a bar in my house, like I can drink here and then go to sleep. Or you know, married. I had no business going out to bars. But it's um you know I find myself just I see my maturity throughout the years just because I've learned what my priorities are. My priorities are definitely, you know, honoring my wife and Especially now, that wasn't always the case. And then, um, you know, being a father to my kids.
0: Yeah. That sounds like those are properly aligned.
1: We'll see, hopefully I stay
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now you got, you one of the toughest people mentally I've ever met. So I think, I think you'll be fine with anything. You just keep that chip on your shoulder and keep moving in the right direction.
1: <laughs> Appreciate it, Casey.
0: We'll see. We'll so, see. And- any closing thoughts or anything you want
1: to highlight? I think the only thing now is, um, you know, to every anybody out there that's, uh, you know, going through some deep, dark times in their life, whether mental, mentally or physically, you know, I'm not going to tell you someone may have it worse, just because I think it's a very poor mindset to have. Don't compare yourself to others. Um, something that my old brigade commander general pat work once said you know we don't compare ourselves to others we compare ourselves to the standard well you know when you're living a life the standard should be being an honorable human being that respects others and does what they can to better humanity and you know i like to think that by continuing to serve you know I, i'm being a leader to many soldiers and it's a great thing but at the same time service for me means a lot and You know, I've given my leg, I've given most of my sanity and a lot of blood and sweat, and at one point, almost my marriage to service for my country. But looking back at it, you know, I I probably would make the same decisions again by serving just because it has shaped me and it has made me see the world for what it is. And it's not the ugly place that for the longest time I thought it was. It's a very beautiful place. And, um, you know, I just want people to know that, you know, don't give up.
0: Oh, that is, that's awesome. And this has been an absolute pleasure having you on here, Josh.
1: Thank you for coming on. I appreciate you, Casey. Take care. Stay in touch.
0: Thank you for listening to Constructive Curiosity. Constructive Curiosity is presented by SFC Consulting. For all your career coaching, project management, and leadership development needs, SFC Consulting has the insight to get it right. Visit sfcconsultingservices.com for more information.